How might schools best support trans students to ensure that all young people can reach their fullest potential? Today, Kai Chang Tom sits down to discuss her work, journey through school, and hope, among other things. With a cold, I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Kai Chang Tom is a writer, performer, cultural worker, and speaker. She also just happened to work with my wife for several years, so I am lucky enough to have the privilege of knowing her as a friend and not only as a celebrated public figure. I asked Kai Chang to join me on the podcast today because when she was young, she attended an all-boys school where she was sent by her parents in an attempt to help her conform more with her gender assigned at birth. What you will quickly discover when listening to Kai Chang speak is that she is whip smart. She is a fierce advocate for young people, and she gives us all reasons to be brave for our students in our schools. You might want to get a notebook out as there are so many quotable sound bites in this episode that I am sure will end up living on a sticky note and inspiring you in your practice. One more thing before we jump in. We recorded this episode around my dinner table and my wife Leslie was with us while we recorded. While she never says anything and was not miked, you can hear her coughing and laughing a little in the background. I have made fun of her already for this and she apologizes, but I just thought I'd clear that up in case it confused you. All right, let's do this. Please join me in welcoming Kai Chang to Teaching Tomorrow. Kai Chang, welcome to the podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Celeste. I love being here. (laughs) You're kind of a big deal right now, so it's uh, awesome that you were able to make the time and join us. Um, But I wanted to bring you in here because you and my wife worked together for a period of time. It's true, we did. (laughs) And you were a practicing therapist with young people, so I'm... It's true, I was. Very curious about the way that you worked with young people, your experience as a young trans girl, like all of these things I think will be really valuable for the teachers that are listening to this today. Oh gosh. I know. I hope so. (laughs) Well, you're just like, you're a really smart person too, so we can Uh, go nerdy and go deep. Flattering me at the start. I know. Uh, okay, so let's start. Who were you as a student growing up? I was um, an extremely nerdy, introverted child. Like, actually, still am extremely nerdy, <laughs> introverted. Public appearances aside, you know. Um, so I grew up in the east side of Vancouver, and uh, this was in the early mid '90s. Now and. Um, yeah, I grew up in an immigrant neighborhood, so like kind of like the southeast, so super, super Chinese area at the time, and then we moved um, deeper southeast, which was even more Chinese. And um, at first I went to public elementary schools, um, and then um, I went to an extremely private school. <laughs> <laughs> extremely private sounds like it's Hogwarts, like you have to like go through a magic tunnel to get there. Define well, extremely private. Um, extremely private. I mean, it, it was not, there was no magic tunnel, but there was certainly a castle. And um, yeah, I, I, I was like a, you know, kind of like a, what I imagined to be. Teachers would know more, of course, like a sort of prototypical, um, much too good kid, you know, mm. like... Um, you know, maybe, you know, always, always getting the like pleasure to have in class comment, um, on the report card. But then after that, always like, could, 
uh, practice socializing more. <laughs> Such tactful things my teachers wrote on the report cards. Um, yeah, I spent most of my time at recess and lunch in the library throughout elementary and middle school. We don't have middle school in Vancouver, but mm. like the middle school years. Um, yeah, so that was me as a younger student. And then I went to public school in uh, grade nine. Um, and uh, that coincided with like the, the flowering of rebellion that, that mm. often comes in <laughs> early adolescence. And then I was uh, not so much a pleasure to have in class. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't come into your report card comment though? Like... No, no. But well, by that time I was, you know, in a public school with, you know, uh, I think it was like 2,500 students or something. So all the comments were automated. They were selected from a menu. Um, And I mean, I was still um, more or less a straight A student with the exception of math at the time. So, yeah, there wasn't a lot that my teachers, you know, um, said uh, that was wrong with me, but I, but they definitely rolled their eyes when I came, when I came into class. Yeah. Yeah. So as you grew up, obviously you somehow became more social because I see you now as somebody who is you know, deeply attuned to people, deeply curious about other people, deeply connected to others. And I just, from what my wife has said, you're a very good therapist as well. Oh. You have you're not practicing therapy right now it's you true. have shifted I have to say that for legal reasons. yeah exactly <laughs> you've shifted out of it but when you were a practicing therapist um what were some of the mental health challenges that you saw with the people you're working with because you worked with the pnp mm. program at ctys which stands for pride and prejudice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and you so you mainly saw queer and trans youth in that role is that correct that's totally correct yeah mm-hmm. i only saw queer and trans youth and almost exclusively trans youth so, you know, my, my formal education is uh, first in social work, and then I did a second master's in couple and family therapy, uh, both at McGill, and um, kind of by accident, kind of by design, really found myself in the area of children's mental health, right? So when you're a couple or family therapist, you can either go family, which is mostly with children and their parents, or couple, which is, you know, adult work. And, um, you know, most of my internships just happened to be in, in, in child psychiatry at the time, Um, or in in pediatrics. Um, And so when I was ready to start a career in Toronto, um, this sort of magical coincidence, plus uh, some conspiring on the part of uh, a former colleague, Lindsay Ellen, actually, (laughs) um, I got a job at C2IS that was children's mental health uh, for queer and trans youth. Um, And I had developed like a a specialty in, uh, you know, working working around sexuality and gender, you know, previous to that. So it all kind of worked together. And I saw lots of um, trans youth who were either just coming out um, and so kind of delivering that news to their parents, uh, you know, loosely using the word delivered, like sometimes like bombed their parents mm-hmm. with the news or, or sometimes their parents uh, found out <laughs> in the way that parents sometimes find stuff out non-consensually. And um, so that was kind of one half of the practice. And then the other was working with uh, mostly trans youth who were marginally housed in some way. So like estranged from parents, possibly living in transitional housing or shelters and really, really going through a time in regards to uh, experiences of trauma and uh, safety and and all the attendant mental health issues that, that, you know, come with having a lower level of access to the social determinants of health. Mm. So what was it like for you as a young trans girl 
growing up in an all boys school. Huh. So thinking about, you know, you working with youth and ushering them through this experience, what was it like for you? Oh, well, you know, um, weird, extremely weird. <laughs> I, I have a very classic trans uh, narrative. And so, you know, not every trans woman, trans, trans woman's narrative will follow this story arc. But mine is, is you know, very classically like I... Um, over-identified with my mother <laughs> and um, really liked dolls and dresses. And I was one of those children who, you know, from the age of three or four was, um, you know, uh, always wanting to do the things that my older sister was doing. And my parents were quite traditional in, in some respects, so, so that wasn't allowed. I was not allowed to do ballet or, um, you know, feminine activities like that. Uh, but in, in the way of lots of families um, that have gender nonconforming children, there was like an inconsistency around that too. So, you know, I was allowed just enough, uh, you know, dolls or sparkles or like play dresses to kind of shut me up sometimes. But then, you know, that could change at any moment. And, um, you know, that wouldn't be allowed anymore, um, which, you know, is really jarring. And, you know, we, we could debate how, you know, which, which is more pathogenic, right? Like not having any access to the things that one identifies with consistently or inconsistently having them and then being punished at random times. Um, so, you know, part of my parents' plan to, you know, I think what they meant to do was support me in, in uh, not being uh, gender non-conforming, uh, not, not being gender conforming, was that they sent me to an all-boys private school on the west side of Vancouver. It was, you know, they, uh, not, no small amount of sacrifice either. Uh, the tuition at the time was exorbitantly expensive, and I imagine it is double or so now, but... Um, Great school in many ways, <laughs> um, uh, super academically and you know athletically and artistically achieving. I will say it is mod. It was modeled after uh, British boarding school. It was a boarding school for some, um, and and so you know not specific to that school, but I think to the British boarding system. Um, it was heavily gendered, right? So we wore uniforms. There was an emphasis on the importance of rugby. Um, and yeah, you know, again, not, not specific to this school, but there was like a heavy, heavy kind of uh, weight placed on masculine norms. Not so much in the earlier grades, I have to say. But, um, you know, the closer and closer we got to high school and then certainly my one year in the high school, there was default expectation of like heterosexuality, of um, kind of roughhousing, of being a boy's boy. Um, and the school is, you know, um, it had some traditions. I'm not sure if they continued them. I haven't been there in many years. But, uh, you know, around phys ed, for example, it was expected that we would shower naked and there were no partitions, right? Uh, this, is, this is at the age of eight or nine. Um, so even in the 90s, that was, that was quite, you know, it was not regular for the mm -hmm. public school system. And, and all of that for me, it was really difficult just kind of trying to reconcile like what um, what was my gender identity. I didn't know that term at the time, but I knew mm -hmm. that I wanted not what I was getting, um, the messaging I was getting from other boys that, uh, you know, uh, homosexuality and gender nonconformity were wrong. Um, and of course, you know, the thing that happened was that we, you know, all graduated. I didn't graduate with that cohort because I left the school, but I kept in touch through social media with some of them. And, and, and lots and lots came out, you know, right after. Um, so, you know, um, it, it was difficult. Mm -hmm. It was confusing. And really, what, when I look back at it now, what I really think about is um, the lack of like a nurturing environment in which to find my needs as a... 
uh, as a child met, right? Like no guidance, no no overt explicit person to say um, you can be, you know, whatever you want in terms of gender expression. Not even you can be whatever you want in terms of masculine expression. There was one way, and if you didn't do that one way, then you were wrong. Mm. What did you know about yourself at that time? Like, so what years were you at an all-boys school? Eight, eight, the age of eight to, uh, ooh, um, 13, 14, so grades three to eight. Yeah, Yeah. quite a few years. Mm -hmm. So how would you have self-identified at that time? Like, I don't fit in, or I feel like I'm a girl inside, or I feel like I'm gay. Like, how did you understand yourself during those years? I understood myself as a feminine boy. Um, didn't really have the words for anything else before that. As a as a young child, uh, like three or four, I would say I'm a girl. I want to be a girl, but you know that had been kind of already pushed out of me by parenting and society before I got to uh, my my boys' school. Um, so then I identified as a feminine boy, and I wouldn't you know publicly identify that way. That's just you know kind of shamefully, secretly thought to myself. Well, I'm a feminine boy and there's nothing I can do about it. There's not a word for it, though, in the way that for girls who are masculine, they would use the word tomboy. Like No, well, we were just called faggots. <laughs> yeah, but you might not be attracted to other men. Like, a yeah, tomboy doesn't yeah. necessarily... Of course, there is, like, gender bullying with that and the lesbian comments mm. come oh, with it. sissy, maybe? Yeah, I guess so. That would be the closest thing. Mm-hmm, but not quite, right? No. Like, it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Yeah, there isn't there isn't a word for, not quite. But, not quite. It's yeah. not not nearly with the like power of tomboy that we all kind of understand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not with like any of the like sort of quasi, um, positive attributes of, of tomboyishness. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. we we can we can appreciate a tomboyish girl as you know, cute or adorable, even if we don't support her. Well, it's the patriarchy, because it's okay for girls to be kind of like boys. Like, girls can wear pants, girls can cut their hair short, but Mm -hmm. boys should never, you know, I say this with, like, you know, satire, but, like, Mm -hmm. boys can't do those kinds of things. Well, I think that's absolutely right. Like, you know, we have a premium on that one way of masculinity, Mm -hmm. right? And, yeah, we 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 can understand why a girl might aspire to be like a man, though she quote-unquote, never can be, mm-hmm. um, but we couldn't understand. It's it's so threatening to the supposed value of uh, traditional masculinity for mm-hmm. boys to, to kind of break out. <laughs> so you left the single-sex school, and, you know, after those years, you came out, mm-hmm. and you have a very public persona, let's yes, say. Yes, we call I you do. gay famous in our community. <laughs> Gamus. Gamus. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. That's perfect. Um, you know, just to give people a context who maybe don't know you, you're on a billboard right now. A young is it still up right now? I think it might have gone down yesterday. Okay. So yeah. very recently you were on a billboard in Young and Dundas Square, which is a big deal. When you came out did that create any kind of controversy in that community of all boys? Like, did you still have friends in that community? Was it like you were gone and you were out and you didn't um, want to talk to people anymore? What was that like for you? Uh, I was not out um, by the time I left, although I think it was, uh, I think the word had spread, like, you know, rumors that, that I was gay, um, or certainly people, I think, referred to me as feminine. Fortunately, in an all-boys school, you do get a handful of those in every grade cohort. So it wasn't like I was alone in that. Yeah, that was another <laughs> question that I had. Like, did you know of anyone else who actually went through a similar thing in their own kind of isolated experience? Like, Not a gender transition, but okay. certainly 
many, um, you know, what you might call derogatively, like an effeminate boy, right, uh, who, you know, struggled with that. Um, but, you know, it, interestingly, at least in some ways, those boys, uh, you know, could see each other. We saw each other. There were quite a few kind of, you know, more uh, traditionally masculine presenting boys who also came out um or, or actually some who, you know, came out only to a few um, and then, you know, didn't proceed. So th- th- I think those were the ones who really kind of um, experienced their journey in complete isolation. Um, the other kind of gender nonconforming boys were, you know, kind of weirdly together in that, but also like heavily bullied, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so after, you know, after kind of growing up and being uh, coming into young adulthood, I did have a lot of um, a lot of former classmates. I think coming out maybe only to me, um, some of whom are still, you know, identified as straight publicly, or mm. you know, maybe even in a heterosexual marriage um, now. So I would not be surprised at all if there were also, you know, trans people who went through that school with me, and I never still don't know, never, mm. knew, never knew. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I think that as a whole culture, people are young people especially, I think, are getting more wise to what does gender mean? How do I want to express myself? So I'm curious in your perspective of as a therapist, mm-hmm. working with young people, working with families, but also as someone who's lived this experience, mm-hmm. what do you think these kinds of spaces, specifically single sex schools, can do to help young people feel safe, feel brave mm-hmm. in terms of coming out? Oh my goodness. Well, I mean... So the research shows that um, like the most important factor in determining the mental health and quality of life outcomes for gender nonconforming and trans and uh, also uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual identified youth are supportive parents, right? Um, and really like kind of landing in that space of like fully supportive, not just like, oh, I guess you're trans and we'll tolerate it. Um, but we won't tell grandma really like mm-hmm. that. We celebrate you for who you are and moving at your own pace to explore gender. Um, and, and so, you know, the first aspect, um, you know, of what schools can do, I think is really helping parents come to that understanding, you know, in whatever way is appropriate. It depends on the school and the community, but, um, you know, having, um, policies that are accessible for parents to read and understand about gender identity and, you know, maybe offering uh, resources for those parents to seek further information, whether at the school or, you know, through the school board or, or, what, or what have you, maybe outside counseling. Um, and then, you know, the second uh, most determining factor in, in, in quality of life and mental health outcomes for uh, for youth who identify differently in terms of gender and sexuality is having supportive adults outside the family. Mm. And so really, of course, this means teachers, school social workers, and guidance counselors, right? Mm. Um, a school can... Um, kind of make all the public statements it wants about like, oh, being accepting or having rainbow stickers. And those are extremely important things. But that doesn't even come close 
um, to really um, having even one teacher or guidance counselor who really gets it. And by gets it, I mean is able to land in a place with those students who identify differently of um, not just tolerating, but really seeing and celebrating, not slotting kids into a category of like, oh, well, you must be trans or you must be gay, mm-hmm. but you are who you are and you're going to explore. And that journey is what the supportive adult is kind of going to be along for the ride for, right? To be around to answer questions about safety, to provide to provide guidance around dealing with social issues with friends and, you know, maybe other adults. So you know, we, we know that just one adult who does those things in an appropriate, safe, boundaried way, um, you know, can change everything mm-hmm. in a child's life. And so if we could imagine then every teacher, <laughs> every guidance counselor in a school being able to provide that experience, then my goodness, like, uh, you know, the, my mind, you know, the mind, the mind kind of just boggles at like what the possibilities would be mm-hmm. for, for improving um, the outcomes for life of, of these youth. And as we know, of course, as it stands, even with things changing, uh, you guys, I think youth are really ahead of the curve uh, from adults, which is not the place we want to be, actually. But we know that, um, you know, trans young people and gender nonconforming young people um, are vastly overrepresented in um, populations of homeless youth, vastly overrepresented in populations of suicidal youth. I think I think the the rates are one in six uh, of a suicide a suicide attempt for for trans and gender nonconforming youth in this country. Um, you might want to double check on that stat, but you know it stands. Um, we we could change all of that. I think um, if with really with good. Um, really deep focused training for school professionals in that area, not just how to say you're queer and trans positive. I had teachers say that to me, but it meant really very little because they had no idea what they were talking about. Um, but to encourage those teachers to to really get deep in the topic, to, to not just kind of say, oh, well, there's difference and that's okay, but like, wow, what's good about difference? What contributions have gender nonconforming and trans people made to society. And of course, for that to happen, it would have to be safe for gender nonconforming teachers um, and and, and queer teachers to uh, identify themselves themselves as such, uh, you know, if, if they wanted to at school. Yeah, it makes such a huge difference just knowing one teacher. I think that even as the teacher, that for me is so comforting to know that I can be the one person in somebody's mm-hmm. life that there's nobody else that they mm-hmm. know that sees them or gets them or uses this kind of languaging. And I know that actually in my building, I'm not the mm-hmm. only person, mm-hmm. but it's really comforting to know that actually this is one way that you can make a difference. Oh my goodness. And it's huge. I'm just, I'm so happy that your students get to have you. Mm, that's really sweet of you to say, mm-hmm. but it's, mm-hmm. but it, I think that it also really comes down to feeling safe yourself as a teacher, taking those risks yes. because well, especially in independent schools, I think public schools have, have a very different set of challenges too, but in an independent school context, parents really do have a lot of power. And well, yes. that's why they choose to go to those schools. And there's a lot of good things that come with that. But if you're worried, if I say this in class, will my parents email the principal? Will the principal have my back? Like all yes. those little dominoes mm-hmm. can really silence teachers from saying supportive, affirming things. Of course. Or engaging in like, a, you know, Uh, supportive relationships that go you know maybe outside of classroom time Mm -hmm. and stuff like that that all has to be kind of held by the school administration and yeah when parents are donating large sums of money potentially Mm -hmm. to a school or you know just are invested as stakeholders in a different way than, than they are in public schools 
oh, it becomes much more challenging. And, and that's where, you know, I think then too, I mean, the beauty of having parents be more involved is that you have more access to them, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe knowledge uh, can be generated among that parent group in a more effective way, right? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the parents as potentially a scary factor for teachers to be supportive actually feels uh, less relevant when you have... I kind of see like the administrators as kind of gatekeepers to what's Mm -hmm. happening at school. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes when parents feel uncomfortable or they have questions or they're curious, they often go to the principals, the vice principals, those people first. And if those people have a really good grounding in anti-oppressive training or with anti-bias training or it can speak to what the teacher might be doing or mm-hmm. why the teacher might be talking about these things mm-hmm. it, it's almost as if the school gets to act as a, a like an educator for the parent too and that's Absolutely. what parents need like the institution of the school is for many parents the experts in children and the experts yes. in how young people are because not everyone's going to therapy which is another expert adult in a family's life yes but you know the institution of a school when it's working really well can say to parents cool i get why you're saying that Mm -hmm. they probably wouldn't say cool they probably use much more (laughs) formal language but i understand where you're coming from and this is what the research is saying and have you thought about this and that's what i think all administrators should be able to do I agree. And of course, you know, administrators, it takes courage. It does. Mm-hmm. It's, this is not easy work. There's not easy answers. Uh, you know, I, I do work as a consultant in various, um, you know, social services and, and human, you know, uh, human education sectors. And you cut, you, you get to down to a point eventually where you say, you know, well, you know, the frontline people have to be supported. Administration needs to be supported. You, you do get land in a place where we also have to say, well, everyone actually does have to be brave yes. um, and be ready to take small measured uh, appropriate risks mm-hmm. um, in order to be the kind of educators and social workers and frontline workers we want to be. And, and fortunately, in the field of education, I mean, so I am not a teacher, but, uh, you know, having, you know, met lots of teachers and um, worked with many for sure. And, and then also, you know, as an avid fan of, of, of Dead Poet Society. <laughs> that is the classic <laughs> how to teach movie, yes. Uh, I mean... Boundaries aside, um, I think there's a real precedent for teachers being brave and being involved in the communities of children and parents that they work with in ways that um, that push the envelope in a way that is good, yeah. right? For in, is is in service of the good of children's development. And so, you know, I, I encourage folks who are listening to to be brave in that way. And and when we're being brave together, it's it's much less frightening. Yeah. And, you know, the trans kids who are coming out, the trans kids who aren't ready to come out, they have no choice but to be brave. Well, this is very true. Walking into a school every day, they have to be brave. Going yes. into the showers that weirdly have no partitions, they have to be yeah. brave. Like, Hopefully they have them now. <laughs> I don't know. It's a yeah. good question. But, yeah, like, we as the people who have the power in the building really have to take more I don't want to say more risks, but to really up more our... More responsibility. Yeah, yeah, and to really up our courage when it comes to putting our necks out mm. there for people who are much more vulnerable and it's much harder to be brave in those situations. Yes. Well, you know, we're adults um, and professionals, right? And, and the definition of, of, of a professional, actually, is uh, someone who... Um, 
who works beyond the scope of someone who has an occupation. A professional is independent in their thinking and independent in their ethics. Um, and most codes of ethics of most um, human service professionals hold that, um, you know, we have to act in the interest of the people we serve, even when those actions might, you know, uh, come, into contract, uh, come into conflict with... Um, you know, guidelines of, administra- of administration or mm. social mores, that we have a duty to be independent in that way. And I lean into that as, as a professional mm. of any kind, um, that we, we're grown-ups <laughs> and we have to be that for, for, for children. Wow, that's really great quote i just want to like take that and put that up on like a bulletin board and look at it all (laughs) maybe in a in a cleaner i'll write that up for you and send it to you thank you (laughs) um you had a really interesting article in extra and you talked about why are queer people so mean to each other (laughs) it's a really it was a really interesting read and i'll put it in the show notes but uh one of the little snippets that i really loved was you wrote when i envision the shape of queer community i imagine a circle of people sitting next to each other each one curled into a tight ball with their heads on their knees they are beside one another but they're not together we are afraid to touch one another so more and more children are coming out in middle and high schools mm-hmm. and this more than is, ever yes. yeah I think it's a sign that people are feeling more brave that these spaces are becoming more safe mm-hmm. perhaps mm-hmm. that the collective consciousness is improving mm-hmm. um, but that being said like you were mentioning that sometimes that can also bring up some not so pleasant behavior amongst people and that you were yes. writing about how queer people can be very critical of each other in this article. You were talking about adults mostly, yes. mm-hmm. but I think that this is also true with young people. Maybe especially true with young people. <laughs> so I'm curious uh, in the context of middle and high school, uh, let me just back up a second. If we take out that initial traumatic experience of coming out mm-hmm. where parents are not accepting young people, schools make it very awkward. If mm-hmm. all of those things are kind of transformed mm. so that people are more accepting and understanding and so that initial experience of trauma isn't there, mm-hmm. what do you think could be possible for oh queer people? <laughs> well, it would be much better adjusted. <laughs> I'd have much securer attachments. Um, you Therapists know. would be out of jobs everywhere. <laughs> Seriously, especially in Toronto. Um, but, well, yeah, I mean, God, so, you know, I think the question you're asking really is like, well, what if we removed the traumatic impact of societal um, queerphobia and transphobia? Um, uh, what if we removed that impact from the, from the development of uh, queer and trans children? And that's enormous. That's huge. Um, uh, queer and trans culture is fantastic and beautiful and complex and has really given society so much and um, in so many ways is shaped around the primal trauma of having to have a secret. Mm. Um, the primal trauma of being shamed. Um, from birth, or well, from you know earliest earliest in one's memory, um, uh, for for uh, not for what one does, but who one is, um, and so we see that you know in the development uh, of queer and trans cultures, right? Like we we have um, entire sexuality cultures um, developed in secret, right? I'm thinking here about like cruising culture for for gay men, or you know um, you know kind of secret. <laughs> Uh, bars and hangout spots for queer and trans people, underground cabarets where 
um, trans people could try on, you know, their preferred clothing for the first time. And then if a police raided, they'd have to hurriedly change into at least three, I believe the law was, you know, three garments of the appropriate gender in order to avoid arrest. Um... That may be apocryphal, but it's 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 quoted in uh, Leslie Feinberg's Stone Butch Blues, which I really recommend as a read. Um, you know, um, and so uh, of course, how could how could we not also then have communities that are are mean to each other? And by that I mean, how could we not have communities where relationships are hard because growing up. Um, we couldn't trust anyone, not even our parents, because even when uh, queer and trans parents say they're doing things because they love us, often they are trying to fix us. Um, so all of that gone, well, you know, what would we be left with? Would be left with beauty. Would be left with creativity. That endless creativity that you know um, is funneled so much into being safe and into um, pushing society just to accept us for what we are could be channeled into, um, you know. <laughs> Uh, making society better as a whole, right? I have I have a, I have a mentor, Catherine uh, Jesse, who is this amazing writer and activist on the west coast of BC, who writes about queerness as flowing like water. And if only it could be freer, then all of us might be a little more queer, right? More able to be tolerant of other people, better at loving ourselves, better at loving our bodies. It's queer and trans people who set the example in this regard uh, uh, of being more self-loving um, because we have to work so hard to love ourselves and we have to take risks to do that. Um, and if, if, you know, the initial trauma was removed, then I really think that everyone in society would be more queer, more creative. And, you know, what, what could be better than that? That's so beautiful. It's, I, I mean, I think that what you're saying, too, is that everybody gets better when we all treat each other well like yes everyone gets better when queer we people do. are treated better when trans people are treated better like we mean, all yes. collectively benefit from We're, that we are somatic animals human beings you know the, the field of interpersonal neurobiology shows us that we have a neurochemical environment in our bodies that is reflected in the bodies of those around us and so if you know all queer and trans people are traumatized that is felt by everyone else in society right i, I do i really love what you're saying i mean i think that if, uh, you know, we created an environment where, you know, queer and trans people could be free, everyone would just be freer. And it's, it's, mm. it's amazing to think about. Yeah, I want to be part of that world. Yeah, I let's want to do be it. there. Let's, let's make it. We'll, we'll, we'll make it happen tomorrow. Fantastic. <laughs> just after I'll breakfast. Put that on my, uh, my homework <laughs> list for my students. Uh, what, what are some things that you think, practical things, that teachers can do to encourage gender diversity and acceptance in their spaces they mm -hmm. have control over? Um, you know, obviously, being a safe adult is yes, one thing, yes. but can you think of practical things that mm -hmm. a teacher might do in their classroom in the next couple of weeks to actually put some of these ideas into practice? Yes, absolutely. So, of course, all of this has to be kind of held within the teacher's judgment of, you know, where their administrative um, and, you know, collegial uh, atmosphere is at, right? Like they, you know, I wouldn't want to push teachers to take steps that were, um, you know, that their particular schools just couldn't support at all, you know, that might put the teacher at risk, which then puts, you know, then students at risk of not having that teacher. So, you know, judging for um, themselves, right, uh, that professional judgment we were just talking about, uh, teachers could look at, um, introducing um, uh, trans and queer friendly material, gender non-conforming friendly material into their classrooms. Um, and that can be, that can look like a huge range of different things, right? Uh, there's 
you know, we're so lucky to have access to a wide range of educational posters now <laughs> that are, you know, for every age, or, well, I mean, there's posters for every age, not that every poster is appropriate for every age, um, but, you know, uh, there's actually, we, 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 you know, a simple Google, um, you know, classroom posters for uh, trans students or for uh, LGBTQ students will pull up so many options. Um, in Toronto, um, there is, I believe, a gender diversity office um, at the TDSB um, that um, professionals can contact for more resources. Um, so, you know, posters, books, um, stickers, all these kinds of things, again, at the right developmental level, um, really open windows um, for uh, queer and trans and gender non-conforming students to be like, oh, part of me is reflected here in this classroom. And that literally is a holding environment where they then start to be like, oh, my possibility is here. I can, you know, open up maybe just a little bit more. Um, and then, you know, we could, we could, we could talk about uh, lesson plans, right? And again, that really depends on the educational and cultural environment that the teachers are working in. But like introducing um, queer material can happen in any subject. Um, you know, stuff like English and social studies for sure, because um, there are long histories of a gender non-conforming culture that teachers can bring in to their classrooms as um, little or as much as they like. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, there are even lesson plans that have been developed. I'm thinking about um, my my friend Vivek Shreya's um, children's book, uh, I think it's called The Boy and the Bindi. Um, and um, she's developed a whole lesson plan around mm. around that, like for, for elementary school teachers. That's amazing. I'll find yeah. it and put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, and so, so you know, there's there's material out there already that teachers can access and you know show to uh, you know their colleagues and and uh, supervisors uh, to you know to kind of get support um, and that kind of thing. Uh, and then I would just say, you know, when all else fails, like. Um, for teachers to, um, like, the smallest comments are picked up on by uh, gender non-conforming queer and trans students, right? Like, the tiniest hints, because, of course, even if they look like they're not paying attention, and probably they look like that most of the time, um, there's a part of, of children that is always keenly aware of whichever adult is in charge in the room. Because that uh, instinct um, comes, you know, from the children's developmental need to seek safety. Um, you know, and so either they're looking to the teacher because the teacher is projecting safety or they're watching the teacher because the teacher feels dangerous. Um, and so the tiniest of behaviors will be, I guarantee, at some point, picked up on by students. And I had teachers who um, made that's so gay jokes for example. That's not a tiny gesture, that's a large wow. one. But they would also say things like, mm, when you are grown up and married, um, because it was an all-boys school, they meant to a woman, and they would talk about how we would propose to our wives. Mm. Um, they would talk about when you start to get interested in girls, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Math questions would have, you know, heterosexual couples in them. I don't know why math needs to be heterosexual. Um, <laughs> That's a great question. You know, all these kinds of things. Um, so just to really, you know, watch, uh, to do some self-reflection on one's own um, mm -hmm. about, you know, what one is projecting um, and, and to support gender non-conforming teachers who may be in the school to really promote an environment where every adult can feel safe enough to kind of be out um, and 
proud because that helps students do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of saying offhand things, right? Like mentioning that one um, has queer or trans friends, if that's appropriate. Talking, you know, including just little tiny hints, um, just acknowledging the existence of, mm-hmm. like that alone yeah. is enormous. That's huge. Mm-hmm. That's a really wonderful list of things that people can think about. Thank you. Thank you for asking. I imagine that everyone listening here just wants to be obsessed with you, like I am, and oh, no, find no. out where you are and <laughs> hidden. Find out about your You're very much not hidden. So That's on a billboard. Yeah, like on a billboard, <laughs> you are there. So can you tell people what you have coming up that uh, is kind of a big deal in your life? Oh well, that's such a great question because you know, you know, <laughs> Celeste, that I, I have a book coming out. Um, um, so this this is not for children this is for adults it's a book called I Hope We Choose Love um, and it is a collection of essays about um, transformative justice and so for those who are not aware of the concept it's really just about looking at how um, we as a society handle political and interpersonal conflict um, be that you know the kind of sexual conflicts and violences that result in a movement like the Me Too movement to conflicts over the things like we're talking about, right? Like, is it possible for um, schools to support uh, queer and trans and gender non-conforming students better? All those kinds of conflicts and, and how trauma plays into that and how instead of trauma and the kind of endless spiral of, of blame and hatred and um, punishment that, that we tend to go for, uh, we, we might instead choose... Um, to work toward this environment where everyone um, can be loved, even if they have, you know, done something wrong or they feel that they are wrong, that sort of thing. And so that book comes out on uh, September 28th. Um, so, so you know, look for it um, in your local bookstore. Uh, it is also available on Amazon if you must purchase from Amazon. <laughs> and um, I'll be doing some events um, around the country Um uh, check my tour schedule. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll put it up. We'll put we'll put up we'll put up my website and you you can find it there. Uh, yeah, but I I will mention also that I have a, a children's book that came out a while it's really ago. Good. <laughs> because because they're all educators listening to this, right? Um, suitable for for an audience of uh, four to to eight, I would say. I think you could even use it with middle schoolers, like as a picture books are really in right now. With okay, seven, great. Eight. Yeah, you can use it, and it's a way to talk about things for oh, young people that. yeah okay so 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 for all ages really <laughs> uh, my, my, my picture book from the stars in the sky to the fish in the sea is about um, a magical gender non-conforming child and uh, you know the support that they receive from from their mother as in fact as they go to school mm-hmm. so so it really is uh, geared in some ways toward an educational audience um, and if anyone out there wants to develop their own lesson plan around that and put it on the internet for free please feel free to do that (laughs) (laughs) it's a beautiful book too my son loves reading it it's gorgeous it has an honored place on our shelf thank you I didn't do the illustrations so I can brag about them they're very good (laughs) (laughs) amazing are you ready for a ticket out the door yes fantastic what is your favorite book to read to young people <gasps> oh god i mean you can say your own book that no. is fine but it's actually um well, it's the story about um the velveteen rabbit yes i know that's kind of fallen out of vogue these days <laughs> because it is a little creepy Fair but enough. i love the velveteen rabbit mm-hmm. i love it and i also love love you forever um mm-hmm. which 
That also, let's acknowledge that that too is a little creepy, little creepy. what with the mother climbing into the window of her yeah. adult son. But it is just so resonant in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we can talk about boundaries with through it. Anyway, yes, yeah, so those two books. <laughs> what would be your last meal on earth? Uh, um, this is so stressful. Uh, lasagna. Amazing. Like Garfield the cat. Great choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you be doing professionally if you weren't doing what you're doing right now? What would be your like alter career if you could go back in time and change everything marine biologist Ooh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i love it yeah i feel like that was very um like a normal thing for children of the 90s to say like i remember it is extremely 90s yeah yes i love it uh <laughs> what's the best gift you ever received oh this is so cheesy but like the you know the unwavering support of friends in my life hmm. and it's and beautiful. also i did i i met um, I believe they were a trans-identified social work intern who came to my high school when I was an angry 17-year-old. And they really made an impression. And and, and that is a large part of why I became a social worker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I often ask teachers in the show who's their favorite edu celebrity. But um, I'm going to change it a little Mm -hmm. bit because you're not professionally in education. That's true. So who's your favorite person who's gay famous? Oh, oh, um, gay famous. I mean, I have to say that it is, um, well, Janet Mock, who is a fantastic uh, sort of media personality, but she's much more. She's also kind of like a, a radical activist. She's uh, a black trans woman who, who, who does many things in the state. She also writes and produces the TV show Pose, which is just so fantastic. It has so many of my favorite gay famous people in it um, and, and gay fam- famous trans people in it. So, so yes, uh, Janet Mock. Amazing. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? Oh, no. I check my phone. We all do it. We all do it. <laughs> What's the last thing you do before you go to sleep? Uh, I don't check my phone. That's the second last thing. The last thing I do is um, I read a little bit of whatever book I'm currently on. It's really good. Uh, what are three things you love about yourself? That's very therapeutic of you. <laughs> um, I love that I... Uh, um, usually a snappy dresser. Not today. Today I'm, I'm, I'm sort of dressing down. But, but usually a snappy dresser. Um, I, I have a, um, an, you know, sort of an indefatigable sense of humor. It's not necessarily good, but I always am laughing at myself. And um, um, oh, what's a serious one? Um, I am really good at forgiveness. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, final question. What gives you hope today? Young people. No more need. I don't need to see any say anymore. Right? It's it's no. just young people. It is such a privilege to get to sit down and chat with you in like a very focused way. Like obviously, I've talked with you many times, but it's really such a delight to get to have a microphone in front of our faces, mm-hmm. record, yes. and just have you to myself for almost an hour. It's totally been so much fun. Thank you for having me and, and letting me ramble on your podcast. I hope you can make something out of it and. Yeah, well, yes, just I'm looking forward to everything you do and work on in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. A big thank you to Kai Chang for opening up, sharing so thoughtfully, and providing so many resources and ideas that I know will benefit all teachers everywhere. 
This episode's show notes are chocked full of links, articles, and references for things mentioned in the show. We didn't talk about it, but my wife wants me to be sure that I include a link to Kai Chang's young adult novel, Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, that, you know, Emma Watson warmly endorsed, so no big deal. What is a big deal is Kai Chang's upcoming book tour. If she's coming to a city near you, you can find out through the show notes and definitely go buy her latest book, I Hope We Choose Love, and watch her read at the book tour. You do not want to miss getting to hang out with Kai Chang in person. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Let's be brave together. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.